Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. On our show this week, we will be talking about the new Tom McCarthy novel, Satin Island, not Staten Island, but Satin Island. We will discuss the New Yorker writer John McPhee on the question of literary references. Do you know what Sprezzatura is? Have you heard of Scarsdale? Those are references. <laughs> Those are good ones, too. It's pasta. Megan Dom talks about one of her favorite writers, Bernard Cooper, and Tom tells us about his trip to Honduras and why all he brought back was the stupid t-shirt. Joining me are my co-hosts, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. Hey, sir. And as ever, Lori Weiner. Hola. British novelist Tom McCarthy has written a piece for The Guardian with the following very provocative headline, The Death of Writing. If James Joyce were alive today, he'd be working for Google. An interesting proposition. I'm not sure I agree with it. Uh, Laurie, before we dig in, tell us a little bit about who Tom McCarthy is. Well, he is a British writer and artist. He's born in London in 69. He had a long road to success. His style is very rarefied, I would say, full of very elite literary and philosophical references. And it took him a long time to get published. And I'm going to say that part of his antipathy about the publishing industry may have to do with the amount of time it took him to get accepted. So he's that rare thing, an embittered middle-aged writer. Never heard of it before. <laughs> what what I found interesting, Tom, is the, the actual piece does not have that much to do with the headline, that it, provocative headline that drew us in. It's an odd piece. And the the thing that struck me right away is that he says that if you had asked him a while ago who the best, most important French mid-20th century writer was, he would pick from the usual suspects, Camus, Genet, Dura, Robrier. But now, he says, he would answer without hesitation, Claude Levi-Strauss. And why is that? The anthropologist. Because anthropology somehow, he seems to suggest, gets at the totality of life in a way that the novelists have always tried to do, but they can no longer do. And, and Levi-Strauss did it. Now, I just happen to have reread Tristropique recently for this travel book well, I'm working I'm sorry, on. you said that very quickly. Tristropique, it's a book late in Levi-Strauss's career in which he is kind of revisiting his career and thinking about anthropology in various ways. It's a real switch for him and he worries through why he's writing it in the beginning and there's when I was in graduate school this was the book that everybody was most excited about by Levi Strauss because he'd gotten rid of the kind of structural anthropological stuff and was really writing on the other hand I think of it's a terrible book and I think he's a snob and he uses the n-word to describe the little children that, that are running after him in Brazil it's racist it's nasty he strikes me as a bilious old fart in the in the book. So I'm not sure why everybody was so excited about it. I'm not sure why Tom McCarthy's so excited about it. Yeah, there's some nice sentences here and there, but um, that's terrible. Like resurrecting Chalene today. He says something interesting in the article that I'd like to read, though, because he makes a comparison. Well, rather than... Uh Summing it up, let me just read what he says. As a novelist, I'm fascinated by the figure of the anthropologist. What he or she embodies for me is a version of the writer minus all the 
All the camouflage or obfuscation embodies that is the function of the writer stripped down to its bare structural essentials. You look at the world and you report on it. That's it. You spend time with the tribe, observe the way they fish and hunt, discern the contours of their rituals, beliefs and superstitions, tune into their unspoken taboos. Then after a year or so of this, you lug your notepacked trunk down to a dilapidated jetty from which a series of small rubber trading posts and giant ocean liners carry you back to your study where a khaki swapped for a cotton shirt and tie, saliva liquor for the twinings or iced scotch, your housekeeper purveys you on a tray, you write the book on them, the great report that maps the world you have been observing at its deepest and most intimate level, sums the tribe up, speaks its secret name. An amazing metaphor, actually, for what the novelist does, but uh, do we agree? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, very well written, but f- but it, it's full of I mean, he cannot believe, I do not believe that he believes, that uh, what the anthropologist embodies is a version of the writer minus all the The means everything. It's the essence of fiction. It's the stuff you make up. He can't believe that. If James Joyce were alive today, this would kill him. I, I, you know, I would love to push back, but I totally agree with you. He seems to miss the essential point that what's animate that what animates art is the artist. You're listening to the Larb Radio Hour. This is Seth Greenland, and I am here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. Now, wait a minute. You need you need to tee this up. Tom McCarthy has a new novel out. Yeah, it's called Satin Island, not Staten Island, which is what I thought it was when I first heard it. And actually, Larb is doing a review of this new Tom McCarthy two reviews. Novel. Two yeah, reviews. we're doing two reviews because he's an interesting, important writer. Okay, so let me just give you a precy of what the book's about. This is from our review by Daniel Pierce of the novel Satin Island. The narrator is you. It's just capital U. Period, and he works for the company. The company, and this is That's in, uh, capital T, capital C. Capital T, capital C. And this is, in the words of our reviewer, the company operates as a sort of microcosmic academic institution, monetizing via distribution and sequestration the production and acquisition of knowledge. Its ersatz dean is Payman, a visionary who specializes in the delegation of vague tasks. This Payman has instructed you to write the Great Report, also all caps, a sweeping ethnographic assessment of the present epoch, the first and last word on our age. So that is, is the plot. That's the plot, and that's what he argues is what the novel should be doing. The novel should be doing exactly what he just did in his last novel, which is, you know, a self-serving problem that we have with this kind of piece. Um, One of the things that really bothers me about this piece is something that happens to us all the time at, at LARB, which is that we get people writing pieces that their publicists and their publishers are asking them to write to get themselves into the newspapers exactly the way Tom McCarthy has gotten into The Guardian here in order to plug their book, basically. It's a time-honored way of getting free publicity. And this argument that he's making is the argument that the novel's making. And he's just kind of paraphrasing himself in the piece. Because he's paraphrasing himself, but he's doing it as an argument instead of as a novel, it comes off, I think, as intellectually confused. He's contradicting himself in, ver- in various ways. Where's the contradiction in the, in the Guardian piece that we're discussing? Well, he opens the piece by saying that Levi Strauss is the great mid-century French writer. And then halfway down the piece, he says the writer is as, as vanguard ethnographer. The problem is the anthropological model is fraught with problems. 
he's saying that the new novelist is an anthropologist, but anthropology is a terrible science, a lack of science. So it's utterly right? intellectually incoherent. It is. Words. In a novel, I think you can bring up the value of anthropology and denigrate the value of anthropology at the same time. That's the beautiful thing about a novel. It's a complex way of thinking that goes beyond anything that an anthropologist can do, except in a memoir-like piece like Tristropy. So what you're saying essentially is if you're going to write a self-promotional, self-serving piece and publish it in The Guardian about your novel, it should at least have some internal consistency. I think an argument benefits from consistency and a novel is killed by it. But here's the thing. In... In, he's writing he's writing literary fiction, and let me defend people who write literary fiction for a moment. Absolutely. In a, in a very self-serving yeah. way, since I write literary fiction. So let me yeah. be self-serving. Mm-hmm. I think what writers like Tom McCarthy face is the fact that very few readers are interested in this genre, and literary fiction is, after all, a genre. So they are drawn to publishing pieces in The Guardian that have to be self-serving because their publishing houses have no budget. Absolutely. There's a shrinking readership. And if Tom McCarthy ever somehow listens to this podcast, I want to tell him that I too have been guilty of what I slagged him off. Oh, absolutely. And we love you, Tom. We love you. So it's a, it's a funny kind of a thing. He, he has to do this thing to bring attention to Satin Island. He does. And it's a perfectly reasonable way to do it. Except, you know, except that I have this little nagging hatred for Claude Levi Strauss, who I used to like, understandably. But the, yeah, you know, but but he, but he just, uh, wow. Being being the racist that he is, which is kind of a funny thing for an anthropologist, actually. Yes, you would think if any profession would yeah. be a little bit more immune than others. Yeah, and the interesting thing to me about this little dream of uh, science replacing the novel that McCarthy throws up for us here, is that when Tristropy came out, it was celebrated in part because it was right at a moment when anthropologists were re-examining what they were doing and they were saying to themselves, wait a minute, maybe we're not a science. Maybe we're in fact just telling stories about the people that we're hanging out with and those stories are what we have that are of of some value. It's called the narrative turn in ethnography. And the the thing that, that they were all aspiring to was the novel. And so to have him aspire to anthropology is, is, I think, a little funny. And deeply ironic. So essentially, we're calling on Tom McCarthy and saying that if James Joyce were alive today, he would not be working for Google, but would be writing some contemporary version of Finnegan's Wake. Right. No, we're saying that if he were alive today, this essay would kill him. And there's one more piece of this essay that I'd like to point out, which he, he, part of his argument is that Most of the people who have studied English and literature eventually go to work for corporations because there's not a lot of ways to make money as a novelist. So that within corporations, we will find some of our best writers trying to do official fiction, that is, what the corporation wants that writer to write. But to claim, as he does, that that, what's being written in corporations, is a kind of great literature. I think if George Orwell were alive, this would kill him. He's constantly <laughs> making claims that he cannot possibly believe. I right. think if, well, if George Orwell were alive today, he'd be writing Tom McCarthy as a character. Yeah. And of course, yeah. on the other hand, I think if James Joyce was alive today, he would actually like Tom McCarthy's novels quite a bit. Our friend Megan Dom is here to answer the question, what have you been reading lately? 
I am reading, or I have recently finished reading, a new memoir by Bernard Cooper. It's called My Avant-Garde Education, and I thought this would be appropriate to talk about here because he is a Los Angeles- He certainly is. Based author, of Los Angeles figure, and this is a memoir about, among other things, going to school at CalArts, right, Uh when it opened in the early 70s. And so it's this wonderful history of that institution and also an entire genre of art. And does that mean that he's naked through most of the book? That's what I remember. (laughs) Except he could be. I mean, all, you know, all authors might as well be naked. (laughs) I don't know much about Bernard Cooper. Give us a little background about Bernard Cooper. (laughs) He's a great guy. He is he a friend of yours? Yeah. So you're plugging. So you're plugging a friend's book. I am plugging a friend's book. (laughs) And I'll be totally honest. I I blurbed this book. I'm not going to read my blurb here because I'm speaking extemporaneously. Um, <laughs> but even if I hadn't blurbed this book, I, I would be talking to you about it. I would like you to read that blurb, maybe. Really? Yeah. Okay. In my avant-garde education, Bernard Cooper delivers a kind of magic. He works in a mode that is so subtle, so ingenious, so deeply rooted in the visceral that it almost defies verbal description. By asking, what is art? Cooper is really asking, what is life? And though he gives us no easy answers, he explores these questions with such insight, humor, and generosity of spirit that we come away not only educated, but genuinely enlightened. Now, that's a hell of a blurb. That's a great blurb. I I charge $500 for the blurb. blurb, Okay, great, great. I've invoiced him. uh, How much of that is hyperbole? None. I, okay. I, I realize that it's a blurb and we're supposed to be hyperbolic, but in this case, I just I think this is a beautiful, subtle, hilarious book. And one of the things... Part so of, it's a real change part for him. Of the, <laughs> no, Bernard... <laughs> well, Bernard is, is probably most famous for the bill from my father, right. which started off as a This American Life segment. It's the story of his father... Maybe all parents fantasize about this, actually handing him a bill for every single thing, an itemized bill, every single expense that he incurred as a child. I remember when that happened. That caused a lot of media uh, chatter. Yeah, yeah. And it's a wonderful book. And he's, you know, sort of developed a cult following around that. But he's an author of a lot of books and, and he writes a lot about art and he actually is an artist himself. But I think this book is really, it's special even for him because it's, does so many things at once and it's not a terribly long book um, but it it covers a huge amount of ground. And so as he's talking about Cal Lars, he's also talking about his own coming of age. He's talking about his own sexual education. Yeah, you know, he's a guy who grew up in, here in Los Angeles. His father was a lawyer. um, You know, pretty conservative family. And he uses the experience of discovering this this kind of art and being in Los Angeles and being at CalArts at this particular time, he uses that as a way of talking about his own sexuality and his own identity and just sort of place in the world and place in the culture. And he, he weaves it all through just so seamlessly. I mean, that that's what really struck me about it. It was like such incredible skill. He's, he's an incredibly gifted writer anyway, but this is a book that combines his gifts with real skill. And the title again is? My Avant-Garde Education. By Bernard Cooper. And so I'll take it back You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. I'm Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. Do we need to explain to anybody that it's really only a half hour? No. It's only a half hour? Oh.
The great New Yorker writer John McPhee has written a terrific piece about frames of reference. And before we get into it, Laurie, tell us a little bit about John McPhee, since he's a reference who some of our listeners may not be familiar with. That's true, Seth. He was born in 1931. He was born in Princeton, New Jersey, and he has become very famous as a teacher of nonfiction at Princeton University. He's taught generations of new nonfiction writers. He started his career at Time Magazine, but he is famous for his long association with The New Yorker. He has written 29 books, and most of those books were originally, some of their material was at least originally seen in The New Yorker. He also distinguished himself from other more famous journalists in the 1960s and early 70s, Tom Wolfe and Hunter Thompson, who were starting the new journalism in which they inserted themselves into the story. McPhee is kind of a more modest personality than those men, and he he does insert himself in his stories, but in a more modest, uh, literary, and subtle way than Tom Wolfe and Hunter Thompson. And his right, it's reflected in his prose style, which he's very well known for, uh, equally modest and, and lapidary, really highly polished and refined, like a, I was saying earlier to you guys, like a 17th century Dutch cabinet, really. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful prose style, great timing, uh, and you just feel like yeah, it's put together like a beautiful tongue and groove joint. Now this piece, Seth, is about whether you can use a reference like tongue and groove. Yeah, he uses a great example to start the piece. A student of his used a phrase called sprezzatura, and which is an Italian word that means, what does it mean, Laurie? It's spermatozoa. It's not spermatozoa. Oh. It's spe- sprezzatura, Laurie, oh. wake up. Oh, wake no, no, up. it's a pasta dish. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's <laughs> no, a, it's a uh, dessert. It's a dessert. <laughs> Topping. Well, he goes around and he asks 15 different people who all of whom speak Italian, none of them can place it. And it's because it's a word that's fallen out of use, right? It's from the 16th century. 1528, the Castiglione's the courtier. Right, and that's where the word comes from. And so it is a very specialized term. But for, for the rest of it, when he, when he queries his students, you know, how many of you recognize reference X? It's about the basically the, almost entirely the farther back in history you get, the fewer hands get raised and in recognition. So when he asks about Jackie Gleason, he doesn't get a single hand. Um, he asks about David Susskind, Jack Dempsey, uh, George Plimpton, um, Bob Woodward, um, which has to hurt poor old Bob Woodward, Sophia Loren, Mortsall, Gene Kurt, James Boswell, Samuel Johnson, he gets zero hands raised. So the question for a writer is, are you allowed to use any of those word names? Uh, are you allowed to use those references or not? Well, what the, it's a tricky answer because it goes to what is the writer's function? Do we just want to, do we want to inform? Well, of course we want to inform, but what responsibility do we have to educate? And shouldn't people be learning things, whether individual words or ideas or people they haven't heard of uh, through reading the, the, the work that we write. I think uh, for a professor, the answer is clear. Absolutely, you want to teach. You want to, you want to tell your students who Proust is. Uh, it's your job to do that, to inform them of these references. But you know, if you're talking about other kinds of writing that are, say, joke writing, for instance. Like when we were in our 30s, I remember a really funny joke was um, the kids were so dumb that they 
they they said Paul McCartney was in a band before Wings. Like that was a very funny joke twenty years ago. You can't make that joke now because now Paul McCartney is so old that you'd have to say something like Paul McCartney didn't always look like Angela Lansbury, no, or I you'd have say, to. I would say you can't make that joke because people would say, "Who's Paul McCartney?" <laughs> that too. Right? You know, it, I, uh, I I when I went off on this. Uh, little adventure into the Honduran jungle uh, looking for the lost white city uh, with Bill Benenson, um, the filmmaker recently. Uh, I, as I was picking up all of my equipment uh, at, a, at an adventurer store, at a camping store, the dreadlocked white kid who um, was serving me, kind of professional camper kid. We all know that he, kid. Yeah. He said, I, he, I told him where I was going and he said, oh, you know, so awesome dude. He said, whatever you do, don't touch the accursed idol, <laughs> which I found hilarious. Uh, and I've now told a lot of people that sometimes I get a big laugh uh, and sometimes I don't. Okay, now I'll bite. What's the accursed idol? Well, I assume it's a it's a uh, Indiana Jones reference, but it, I, for me, it didn't really matter whether it was uh -huh. an Indiana, Indiana Jones reference. It's just a kind of reference to all of those adventure novels. Because right? the Indiana Jones movie was a reference to all of those earlier adventure movies. It, so was it almost doesn't matter at which point you get the reference. You get into it. But for some people, the reference itself was just missing. They don't watch those kinds of movies sure. and uh, they never did. And so the reference is gone. Does that mean you're never allowed to use them? Obviously not. I mean, you, you, you are always, every time you use a reference, you are limiting your audience to the people who get that reference or that are willing to look it up. But isn't one of the joys of reading learning these new things? Absolutely. And being able to stay contemporary with the culture as we become old farts slowly. McPhee has a good uh, rule of thumb in here, which is don't use a reference that's going to get stale by the time your editor reads it, which is interesting, right? So the, these, these references are always going to be somewhat limited um, depending on what you're watching. I mean, now, who, who doesn't know... What, Raider, what Raiders of the Lost Ark is. There are people who don't. Absolutely and there are certainly are. people who have never seen it. I, I spoke to a man who is a, a, he works for USC and he's an expert in aging and he is a very learned man. I was talking to him about Baltimore. He had never, he did not, he had never heard of The Wire. He did not know who John Waters was. And, and so we're not allowed to use any proper names ever. Right, or refer to any cultural products ever. That, that's that's the that would be the end result of really taking this seriously. My my friend Jose Rivera wrote a play with the title "References to Salvatore Dali Make Me Hot," <laughs> which was done at the which Public is, Theater in New York, which uh, is really great for our discussion actually, because it's a, it's about references, it's about the effect of references, and of course, if you haven't studied art history in college, do you have any idea who Salvatore Dali is? And I really remember reading Nabokov as a kid and having all these um, references to stuff I had no idea what they were and all the and, and some little phrases in French and Russian and I had no idea what they meant and I was thrilled I loved not knowing what the reference was to I loved the idea that there was a world of stuff out there for me to discover yet and that uh, and that and it was my job to get better at recognizing the references I think we, we need to up our RPM or references per minute. I completely concur. Do you guys remember in the 80s, Dennis Miller on Saturday Night Live? Oh, yes, yeah. well, he was the reference a, guy. A comedian who used to be funny. Right. And every every bit was about how many references he could string yeah. together in a single sentence. Right, right. and it was, it was amusing. At it the was time, amusing. it was. Yeah. yeah, it got really tired yeah. and really old, and that's what you don't want to do. You know, can't overdo it. I think you can't shit on Dennis Miller enough. I <laughs> that too. I <laughs> have no problem with that. And there's, a, there's an interesting reference. Does anybody know who Dennis Miller is? <laughs> 
The Los Angeles Review of Books is in its spring membership drive, and we can really use your help. Go to lareviewofbooks.org slash membership. Tom, when you abandoned us last week to join filmmaker Bill Benenson on the trip to go to Honduras to find the lost city, is the lost city now been found? Well, we found an incredible site. It's a city. Uh, it's somehow never been walked on. I mean, when we got there, there were implements and carved stone bowls with fancy handles and beautiful pieces sticking up out of the ground. And in Honduras, looting, archaeological looting is a, is a minor industry. And I got fascinated with what was going to happen next to this site because the archaeologists were all in total agreement that nothing could be touched, that the next step was to get in a real excavation team and have it excavated properly, which means that you can test the soil underneath the bowl uh, to see when the last time sunlight hit that soil. You can you have to you have to be very careful and run a bunch of tests every time you move an object. The other people on the expedition, the non archaeologists on the on the expedition said, well somebody's gonna walk through here any day and rip these things off. Let's take the ones that are sticking up out of the ground and bring them to Tegucigalpa to for safekeeping to the Institute for Archaeology. And the archaeologist said no, because it, it, the context is all. They said, we've got bowls like this in the, in, the, in the museum already. There's no reason to bring one more bowl in. There's no scientific value to the bowl itself. The bowl has scientific value in relation to its context. Now, in the 19th century, when the uh, German archaeologists would come across uh, Bogoskali, the, uh, the Hittite capital in Turkey, uh, he would just buy the entire mountain that it was on and own it forever. And so when I was there, uh, the guy that was showing me around dug for the Germans in the, every summer. His father dug for the Germans every summer. And his grandfather had dug for the Germans every summer. This, this was a, a hundred-year dig that was going on, and it was protected by the fact that it was owned by the Germans. The Honduran government doesn't have the resources to protect this site. The Honduran Institute for Archaeology does not have the resources to start digging it right away. So the question is, what's going to happen to this incredible untouched for 600, 900 years, untouched site. And the answer is probably it's going to get looted. And what is around it in the jungle? Is there a river anywhere nearby? The reason nobody's been there for six or 900 years is that it's in a, in a kind of, uh, maybe it's a volcanic remnant, but there's a wall of, of hills around it. There's only one entrance. Um, we had to helicopter in. Um, the It's very, very dense jungle. It's full of flesh-eating poisonous snakes it's a it's a you know it's a tough tough place to end up in it was found through lidar this uh, laser-based technology that allows you to kind of send thousands and thousands of, of laser beams down through the canopy every once in a while one of them gets through the canopy and charts the floor and when they found this they made this lidar map flying back and forth and back and forth over the jungle around this area that steve elkins who's the real motor force for the project uh, around an area that he had identified as the probable place for this lost white city did you feel like indiana jones it felt it was it was great. It was great to be, you know, really exploring in the jungle. I mean, it's kind of like a boyhood uh, fantasy come true. So we all we all felt great about doing it. But at the end, the question of what's going to happen to this site looms very large. I get I get both sides of the argument, and National Geographic gets 
both sides of the argument as well. They're now talking about putting together some money to get an expedition down as soon as possible. Whether it'll be soon enough or not, nobody knows. Uh, The British Special Forces guys who were there as our security, uh, I asked them when they thought it would get looted. They said, uh, roughly three days. (laughs) Uh, The the, uh, the, uh, the head archaeologist in Honduras said, a matter of weeks. Um, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a couple weeks in now, so we hope that it's still there. Thanks to Megan Dom, our producer, Jerry Gorin. We're grateful for the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, I'm Seth Greenland, and you've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org where all your questions will be answered.